When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order. And I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello everyone. Today I will be talking with Dr. Carolina Sweldo. Dr. Sweldo is a double board certified fertility specialist currently practicing in Florida. She completed her residency training at UCSF Fresno and her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Sweldo has been a speaker at national meetings, as well as international speaking invitations throughout Latin America, such as Argentina, Colombia, and Mexico. She is the go-to local media women's health expert in the Central Valley, and she has held several positions within the women's health community, such as vice chair and chair for her district section. Dr. Sweldo is passionate about empowering women through education about their fertility. In today's episode, we will discuss infertility, secondary infertility, how to optimize fertility, the best time to conceive, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everyone. Today we have Dr. Carolina Sweldo. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. So today we are going to talk about infertility and secondary infertility. And I know this can be a difficult subject for a lot of people. And I hope to clear some things up for everyone today and hopefully give you just some hope that you might want or need in your life if this is something that you are currently struggling with. So Dr. Sweldo, if you don't mind starting with maybe the most up-to-date statistics on those that are currently affected by infertility? Yeah, absolutely. We used to quote one in eight. So one in eight couples in the U.S. was impacted by infertility. 
But just as recently as this past April, the WHO actually released a worldwide study and reported the incidence was one in six people worldwide is impacted by infertility. And we know that here in the United States, as women are delaying childbearing and worldwide, as we are exposed to more and more industrial toxins, particularly post-industrial revolution, we are seeing more and more infertility in our communities. And it's really interesting when you talk about infertility, the traditional definition is for women under 35, if they've been having unprotected intercourse for at least a year, for women over 35, if they've been having unprotected intercourse for at least six months. But what most people actually don't know is that you also have what's called primary infertility and secondary infertility, which we mentioned at the beginning. So primary infertility affects a patient who has never been pregnant before. Secondary infertility is somebody who's been pregnant before many times successfully. So they've had a live birth, they have a baby at home, and now they're trying maybe for number two or number three, and they're finding that it's just not as easy this time around. And this can be sometimes even more frustrating, sometimes even more traumatizing because they're, they're, you know, the idea is, well, it was so easy last time. What's happening? Right. And how common is that, the secondary infertility? We actually see it a lot more common than people think. We think that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20% of couples that have been successful in the past. And there's a number of reasons we believe that secondary infertility may occur. One of them, the most common one and the the primary one is going to be maternal age. So as you space out your pregnancies as a woman ages, particularly if she started, you know, if she started trying later in life, that age factor, even by just a couple years, can become really, really important in women over 35. The second thing is we also talk about, you know, maybe there were new developments or new diseases that have arisen since the last pregnancy. So things like you know, medical conditions like diabetes or thyroid, uh, maybe their weight is significantly different from when they got pregnant the last time. So there's a number of factors that we're assessing when we look at secondary infertility. Now that said, many times, actually, we don't find a reason. So many times we have what's called unexplained infertility, which is basically infertility with a negative workup or a negative evaluation. And I actually don't like the term unexplained. I don't think that's very helpful for anybody. I prefer the the term undiagnosed. So the testing available today is not finding whatever it is that's going on with that couple. Now, a question about that. Well, I guess infertility and then secondary infertility, both of those. Now, if you're someone who is, say, 27 years old versus someone who is 37 years old, is there going to be a stark difference between when they seek professional help? Like, you know, obviously, if you can actually touch on how the statistics around getting pregnant, like how how much you actually have to try before getting pregnant, the normal average person, and then kind of the difference between maybe a 27-year-old needing to seek help versus someone who is older and trying maybe for the first time or maybe experiencing secondary infertility, are you going to interfere with their care and intervene earlier than someone who is younger? 
Okay. Yeah. So let, let's break that down. So, you know, the first thing, the first concept I think that's really important to talk about is ovarian aging, because when we talk about maternal age, really what we're talking about is the ovarian aging process. And at least with today's science, and this may change in the future, there's a lot of bench research that's going on right now, but at least with today's knowledge, we know that the ovary has a defined number of eggs And it loses those eggs gradually and continually over time. And as a woman ages, particularly above age 35, we begin to see a more rapid decline in both the number of eggs that she has, as well as the quality or the health of those eggs. So it's really important to make that distinction. We have egg quantity and we have egg quality. And quantity is measurable, and there are tests we can do to check that. Quality is not measurable. We don't have a test today to assess egg quality. So we infer egg quality based on things like age, risk factors. Is she a smoker? Does she have underlying diseases like endometriosis or PCOS? So those are all things we're looking at to assess quality. But to your point about 27 versus 37, Really, the idea there is the ovarian aging process. So in a young patient who is, you know, let's just say she's healthy, she's fertile, she has two kids, she's trying for a third, she just started trying, her likelihood of pregnancy is going to be approximately 20% per month. By the time that same patient reaches age 40, that now has dropped to 5% per month. Still young, still healthy, still fertile. And so there is a clear impact of the aging process on the likelihood of getting pregnant, even in healthy women who are fertile. So age is absolutely important. When you talk about, you know, when to seek help, I think that's a crucial topic to talk about because I think too many women are waiting too long. So the classic definitions for somebody who's under 35, if you have regular cycles and you've been having unprotected intercourse for at least a year, you need to at least have an evaluation. If you're over 35, that timeline actually gets cut down to six months. But there are some exceptions to that, to those definitions. So let's say the patient has a known history of some sort of pelvic surgery. So in secondary infertility, maybe she's had a C-section for her delivery, or maybe she had some sort of surgery, you know, in between that delivery and now that she's trying her appendix, her gallbladder, whatnot, any type of surgery. Another risk factor could be infections. Let's say for whatever reason, she had a pelvic infection. And so all of those things can create scar tissue in the pelvis that can impact fertility. The other thing that's really common, and I don't think we talk about enough, is issues with the uterus, things like fibroids or polyps. And fibroids are basically overgrowths of the muscle layer, and they're extremely common in the reproductive age population. We see that approximately 50% of women will develop a fibroid at some point during their lifetime. And there are certain ethnicities or certain risk factors that may increase the likelihood of having fibroids. So that is also an important assessment to make. Another risk factor could be, let's say your periods are progressively getting more and more painful over time, and it's reaching to a point where it's impacting quality of life. You know, first day I had a patient yesterday, first day of recycle, can't get out of bed, is on, you know, Motrin or ibuprofen around the clock, and really just has her down. I have another patient who plans her vacations around her periods because they're so extremely painful. That's not normal. (laughs) And that warrants investigation, you know, sooner rather than later. So 
For those patients, I would definitely say, absolutely, you don't want to wait those six months or 12 months. You definitely want to be seeking help sooner. Another really common complaint that I get is, you know, my cycles are unpredictable or I'm trying to use the test strips that everybody keeps talking about for ovulation and they just don't work for me and I'm stressing myself out. You know, that's another scenario where I'm like, listen, don't wait just go in, get tested, because there may be things that come up during, you know, the prompting the evaluation doesn't necessarily commit you to treatment or commit you to IVF. But I think for a patient who's in the journey of trying to conceive, there is heightened and compounding anxiety that occurs with every passing month. And so if these things are happening, all they're doing is adding stress to the process. And therefore, you should be seen sooner rather than than later. So that's a very long-winded answer, but hopefully that addresses your question. No, that <laughs> that was absolutely perfect. I would love for you to touch on the common myths that you hear from patients that they might mention the most as to, you know, maybe why something is happening or, you know, why they haven't been able to conceive. Sure. So I think just as a as an aside, one thing that I get as a common myth is it's got to be me not him. And so talking about, you know, the male component of this and understanding that, you know, male factor infertility, even if they were previously fertile. So that's a really common scenario. It's a, maybe it's a new relationship. Maybe he has children with another partner. Oh, you know, it's definitely not me because I have, you know, pregnancies in the past. Well, that's absolutely not true. We know that male factor infertility makes up at least 30% of all cases. So that's at least a third of cases. In some scenarios that can be as high as 50%. So definitely important to check the guy. I think the second most common thing that I hear is the birth control made me, the birth control pill made me infertile. So, you know, maybe after you had a delivery, maybe you went on the pill or you got an IUD placed and now you've had it removed and now you're trying to conceive and things aren't happening. And specifically with the birth control pill, we now have really good long-term data that shows that the use of birth control pills does not impact your future fertility. Typically what happens is that the birth control pill is being used either for birth control or to treat or to regular normalize irregular periods or heavy periods or painful periods. So it's a, it's a first line treatment for any of those symptoms. And so when you come off of the pill, it's returning you to your baseline fertility. So if your baseline fertility was abnormal, then that is going to manifest coming off of the pill. And so I think, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I heard the birth control pill made me infertile, or, you know, the reason I'm having trouble is because of the pill, I'd be a pretty wealthy woman. So I really want to try and put that to rest, because that is probably the most common thing that I hear. It simply just isn't true, at least not with, you know, now at this point, it's close to 50 years of data that we have on the pill. So I would love to ask you because I feel like another myth that goes along with that, that I've heard many people say or think is that right after you come off the pill or you take out your IUD or what have you, you are most fertile that first month right after. Yeah. So also not true. What happens is for women who let's say have underlying disease, let's talk about the most common endometriosis, PCOS, fibroids coming off of the birth control pill. You are as optimized as possible in your disease because the birth control pill was being used to treat your disease. 
the longer you're off of the pill, the, the longer those diseases now have to grow and manifest themselves and so potentially have an impact. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I would love for you to touch on, I was just thinking of this as well, people that have been experiencing multiple miscarriages in a row. And so not necessarily infertile, as in they can't get the egg and sperm to meet and get a positive pregnancy test, but they are miscarrying month after month or however many times in a year. When do you get concerned? Because I know this can be really difficult. I mean, even for myself, I experienced this. And it's like, okay, I I understand that it is very common because it is very common. But at what point do I get concerned and need to take that next step? Yeah. So to, to your point about very common, we know that it, across you know all reproductive age women, the risk of miscarriage is one in four. So if you think about that, if you have four girlfriends, there is a strong chance that one of you has had a miscarriage. And, you know, that number is the the risk is going to vary by age and whatnot and all those things. But if you look at all comers in the reproductive age, it's one in four. So I think it's a lot more common than people think. I, I think we're doing a better job of talking about it. I definitely don't think we talk about it enough. And so there's definitely some work to be done. And I would, I would advocate the mental health piece, the trauma that comes along with going through a miscarriage is definitely not talked about enough. I think on the healthcare side, we are not numbed to it, but we're so accustomed. It's such a common presentation for us that I I think it's easy to forget how impactful going through a miscarriage can be on a woman's, not only on her psyche, but on her life, right? The fear of trying again, is this going to happen again? Not being able to enjoy a pregnancy. I mean, there's so many mental health components that come along with going through a miscarriage. So I just wanted to touch on that because I think that's hugely important for patients to understand just how common that is. The important thing or the silver lining is that if you've had a miscarriage in the past, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen again. If you look at the society guidelines, so the American College of OBGYN and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, we typically define recurrent pregnancy loss, which is what we're talking about here, as either two or three miscarriages in a re- reproductive age woman. Now, for most of us, I would say, and I, when I say us, I say, you know, for most fertility specialists, if a patient has had two miscarriages, then we're probably doing, you know, the full evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss. We're probably not waiting until three. And again, it comes back to, you know, why would you subject a woman to go through that multiple times. The frustrating or the difficult thing about recurrent pregnancy loss is that 80% of the time, we actually cannot identify a reason. And so we we diagnose that or we call that idiopathic origin or unknown origin. So for the 20% that we do find a reason, it is extremely important to try and identify those causes because they can be corrected. And that's why we do the million-dollar workup. So for that 20%, we're looking at structural issues in the uterus. If it's somebody who's not been pregnant before, there can be abnormalities of the uterus from birth. So, so while we were developing, that uterus did not develop normally. Many times that is correctable. In somebody who has been pregnant before, maybe there's a new diagnosis. I mentioned 
fibroids earlier in the podcast. And so that could be something that's a new development that's now impacting implantation. The other thing that we talk about, so so number two would be some sort of genetic mutation in mom or dad, where in them, it's balanced. And so it's not presenting with any symptoms. But when they're giving their 50% of the DNA to the embryo, they're giving an abnormal amount. And so that's causing an abnormal embryo to form, which results in a miscarriage. And then the third piece that we talk about is something called antiphospholipid syndrome. And it is a clotting disorder. And the easiest way I I describe APLS is think of your body creating defenses that are attacking the pregnancy. And so it forms microclots in the placenta and ultimately results in a miscarriage. Now, these are the three identifiable and correctable causes for recurrent pregnancy loss. Of course, we want to have done a general health evaluation, right? Does the patient have uncontrolled diabetes? Because that can increase the risk for miscarriage. Uncontrolled thyroid disorder. So many times, undiagnosed thyroid disease can be a cause of recurrent pregnancy loss. So just making sure we're doing that general health evaluation. If that has all been done, it's been completed, there's nothing identified, then we move on to these three causes. So structural with the uterus, genetic, and then the clotting disorder, specifically APLS or antiphospholipid syndrome. Understanding that 80% of the time, everything comes back normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to add too, I mean, do you think that this one in four statistic might even be more common than that because people aren't realizing they're miscarrying. I'm just thinking of this, you know, this immediate, this immediate, immediate period right after you miss your menstrual cycle in that first week or two where many women might say, oh, I'm just, my period's late. You know, like you're not taking that test. You're not even realizing that you're pregnant. I mean, I had a few of these where, I mean, it's only been, I was a week late and then, oh, Oh, I have my period. Oh, and then I take a test and it's actually positive and of course, you know, turns negative over the period of a couple of days. So you don't even realize, you know. So I wonder how much we are missing. Yeah, there's so much work still to be done in this arena. When you talk about, you know, those early miscarriages, that's what we define sort of on the medical side as a biochemical or chemical pregnancy. It's just a, a very, very early miscarriage. So we can document it in urine or in blood, but we never actually reach the ultrasound stage. And yeah, I agree. I mean, there's absolutely room for this to be more common. I think it's simply, you know, we just don't know enough yet. And I think a lot of work is being done in the field to try and explore more about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This podcast episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef makes eating well simple with plans to fit every lifestyle. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a wide range of recipes to suit your preferences. We are getting back in the swing of things with school and fall activities. If you are looking to stock up on functional snacks, clean beverages, to energize you during these busy days, check out Green Bundles, available at Green Market. You can shop here for nutritious grab-and-go breakfast, brunch kits, lunches, ready-to-eat snacks, and more you can easily add on to your weekly order. My personal favorite is Green Chef's quick and easy recipes that include step-by-step instructions for dinners that are ready in 25 minutes or less. Plus, cut down on meal prep with pre-portioned and prepped ingredients, including pre-measured sauces, spices, and dressings. 
all delivered right to your door. It makes getting dinner on the table this fall just a little bit easier. One of my recent favorites was their steak and peppercorn sauce. Absolutely delicious. Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. They offset 100% of their carbon footprint as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. To try Green Chef, go to greenchef.com slash 60 Lindsay, that's 60LYNZY, and use the code 60Lindsay to get 60% off plus free shipping. All right. So what are, if you can just break down what you see as the most common problems with infertility overall? Yeah, sure. So I like to break it down first by female and male factors. So we know it's about a third each. And then about 20% of the time we find an issue in both partners. And then about 20% of the time we find no issue in either partner. That's the undiagnosed infertility I was talking about earlier. So when you break down female factor and male factor, female factor gets broken down. Think of it as far as the pelvic anatomy. So there could be a problem in the uterus, a problem in the fallopian tubes or transport system, and then a problem in the ovary. And when you talk about the ovary specifically, we have PCOS as the most common reason for irregular cycles or anovulatory infertility. So that is probably one of the most common diseases or diagnoses that I see in reproductive age women. The CDC quotes that it's somewhere in the like 12 to 13% of reproductive age women are impacted by PCOS. As far as the fallopian tubes, you really want to think about, is there a history of STDs or some sort of pelvic infection? And even when there isn't, it's really important to check the fallopian tubes because many times those infections in the past do not present with any symptoms. So the tubes may be affected and we never know because we never had any symptoms for it. Now, infections aren't the only thing that can affect the fallopian tubes. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about previous surgeries creating scar tissue that can distort those fallopian tubes. And then also endometriosis, which in its advanced stages can impact the fallopian tubes. And then lastly, the uterus. So I think it's really important if you think about it, you know, what's the easiest way to think about it? I think just breaking it down by pelvic anatomy makes it a little bit easier to digest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Can you touch a little bit more into stress and anxiety and how that has a relationship with trying to conceive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such a great question. And it's so funny, this question, because so many patients who are on the journey and maybe, you know, for whatever reason, they've decided to close the chapter, they're done. And then, you know, within a year, find out they're pregnant. Or, right. And we all, we all have heard that story. Right. And, but, but the issue when you tell patients just relax, that's probably the worst thing you can say to somebody who's trying to get pregnant or just take a vacation or, you know, whatnot. Like, so it's really interesting. And I think, complex and multifactorial. What we know, and this is really great data out of Massachusetts because that's a mandated state where IVF is covered. And what they found is that cortisol levels, which cortisol is a a stress hormone, so it's a marker of stress related. So those levels were actually comparable to women who were undergoing treatment for cancer chemo and radiation therapy. That is how stressful infertility and particularly infertility treatments like IVF can be. 
Now, whether or not that actually has an impact on the outcome, I think is still controversial. I don't think we have any black or white study to say, hey, you know, stress directly impacts fertility. What I can say just anecdotally from my almost decade now of experience since I finished my training is that patients who have made adjustments to their work-life balance do seem to have more consistency in the treatment. They tend to be more positive in the outlook, more engaged in the treatment, and ultimately that leads to better better outcomes and better success. And so, you know, there's multiple layers to this. I don't think there's a black and white answer and anyone who gives you one, you know, I'm not sure where that evidence is coming from, but I can certainly say that anecdotally, I do absolutely see a correlation between a patient who is trying to juggle, you know, work, family, you know, maybe they have a little at home and they're trying to go through treatment or testing or whatnot. And you can just tell they just walk in and they are just stressed. I mean, and anyone who's a working mom, you you understand, you know, you're well, even if you're not working, just being a mom and going through this journey can be extremely, extremely impactful to quality of life and just trying to juggle all the appointments, all the logistics, etc. Even something as simple as like trying to time intercourse when you have littles in the house, right? Like it seems so silly and so simple, but can be extremely, extremely difficult for couples. And so I think, you know, it's really important to understand the impact and to be proactive about managing it. So when you talk about proactive stress management, we know that the, the fertility journey is going to be stressful. We know, and when I say we, I mean fertility specialists. When we know that you're going to come in, you're going to do treatment, it's going to impact quality of life. There's going to be a roller coaster of emotions associated with that. And if you're not doing anything for self-care, anything to get out in front of that stress, it, it's going to compound over time. And that can look different for everyone, right? So Something as simple as regular meditation, which recently was published in a a very high quality journal, JAMA, to be comparable to the use of antidepressants, whether that's individual therapy or couples therapy, whether that's group support online or in person. I mean, there's so many different avenues for that stress management, but I think the key is being proactive, not waiting until, you know, the gas tanks on E to start looking for these resources, but really getting out in front of it at the beginning can be very life-changing to that journey. Can you touch on the other ways, as you just mentioned, these ways that you can help combat stress and anxiety, but other ways to also optimize your natural fertility? Mm-hmm. So one that's a great de-stressor that also is great for lifestyle optimization is exercise. And I know that people are probably rolling their eyes right now, <laughs> but there's a very real release of endorphins that happens when we increase that heart rate, when we get our bodies moving. And there's a colleague of mine who talks about, you know, loving your body with movement. And I just love that phrase so much because it really is both, you know, I want to optimize and be in my best health for my fertility journey, but I'm also helping with my stress levels. And even something as small as 10, 15 minutes a day can really be, you know, a change maker. And I always come back to what's doable and what's reasonable. 
for a mom at home who's also on this journey, right? Because there's so many other layers that we're talking about here that you can't just drop everything and focus on this. These have to be things, when I talk about lifestyle optimization, they have to be things that can be incorporated into your daily activities or into your regular life routine. So exercise is a one that I love. I think it's even if you're doing, you know, yoga or low impact exercises like a stationary bike or, you know, walking on a treadmill, whatever it could be, you know, getting outside, being in the sun. Right now I'm I'm based out of Florida and right now that heat is pretty, pretty crazy. But you know, getting in the pool and spending a few minutes swimming. I mean, anything to to get outside, get some of that vitamin D and move your body is not only going to help with lifestyle optimization, but it's also going to help with that stress management I was talking about. And then I like to talk to patients about doing an inventory, right? So what's your caffeine intake? What's your alcohol intake? You know, are there any exposures? So for example, painters, firefighters, hair salon workers, they're going to have exposures that are different to the general population. You know, what's your sleep? I think I have another colleague who says that sleep is the forgotten pillar of health and really trying to optimize sleep as part of your wellness and health journey. And then lastly, nutrition. I do think there needs to be an emphasis on nutrition and I don't think it needs to be restrictive. I don't think you need to calorie count or do anything crazy, but I think it's just about making healthy choices, right? So eliminating liquid calories. So trading out juices or sodas for healthier options and then looking at, okay, if I have to write down everything I eat in a day, how many times a day am I eating? What am I eating? Could I make a difference here or there? And then I think the last piece to all of this is starting small and taking one change at a time. If you have your daily routine, daily life that you have with your family, and now all of a sudden you're trying to go from zero to 60 and you're making a hundred changes all at once, that's not going to be sustainable. And it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to maintain that consistency. It's just too drastic of a departure from what you're doing currently. So incorporating one small change at a time, I think will help with the consistency and the longevity, which is really what we're hoping for, right? Because really the idea is the healthiest you is not only going to help you conceive, but also maintain a healthy pregnancy and be the best mom you can be for that baby that's coming. Yes, absolutely. So I know that even for me, who is in the medical field, but as far as, you know, conceiving and when is the best time to try to conceive and tracking ovulation and trying to realize, I mean, whether you're using the strips or just going by things like basal body temperature. And can you go over what you think are the best ways to track your ovulation and what you've seen as being the most successful way to conceive? I'm so glad you asked this question, Lindsay. (laughs) So I have had patients come to my office and say, well, you know, my doctor told me to have intercourse every other day, the whole month. And I, I, I'm looking at them like, really? Or, you know, have every, every other day or every day for, for the 10 days around ovulation or, or just, you know, and these are, these are goals that are just not realistic for like a normal couple with a kid at home, even if you don't have a kid at home, right? It's so stressful. And we talk very much about intercourse becoming medicalized or, or mechanicalized. And it really takes out any of the intimacy and connection because there's like, it's very, 
very goal-driven. It's very task-oriented. And even like for many men, we see performance issues because it just, there's so much pressure on this. Okay, it has to happen now, you know, et cetera. So I'm so glad you asked this question. Now, the important thing here is number one, to identify if the patient is having regular monthly cycles. So are you having regular predictable periods that allow you to even track your cycle to begin with, right? So hopefully for most women, the answer to that is yes. So if that's the case, then most women are going to have somewhere around a 28-day cycle. Now, 28 is what the textbooks say. Normal is actually considered plus minus a week from that. So anywhere from 21 to 35 is actually normal. But you want to make sure that it's consistent over time. So if one month it's 21 days and the next month it's 35 days, that's not normal. But if you're regular every, you know, let's say 20, I'll just pick 25. So every month you're getting your period around day 25. And just so you know, when I'm counting, I'm talking up from first day of full flow bleeding to the next first day of full flow bleeding. So that's really how you want to track your cycle, whether you're doing it on an app, whether you're doing it on just a regular calendar notebook. So, so really understanding what your menstrual regularity is. And then really, I like the ovulation predictor kits. I think they're kind of the easiest, less tedious, if you will. You can buy them in a pharmacy or any big box store. They're over their counter. They're non-prescription. You can buy them on Amazon if you want as well. And, you know, it's really become quite an industry. So you have sort of your basic, simple yes, no. And then you have the really now advanced, fancy digital that give you a whole full hormone panel. They give you high fertility, peak fertility, almost, you know, almost ovulating, yes, ovulating, no, all these different things. In my personal experience, what I have found both for myself and for my patients is that the more advanced ones just complicate things and confuse people. So really like when I was trying, I literally was using the Walmart brand and they work just fine for me. So I'm not saying you have to use the Walmart brand, but what I am saying is just find one that is reliable and predictable for you. And that's not going to add more stress to the journey. So if you know that you have 28-day cycles, that means you're going to be ovulating around cycle day 14. And so typically we encourage patients to start testing a couple days before. So let's just say day 10 or 12. So you're going to get a couple days of negatives first. And then at some point you're going to get a positive. There's going to be a change. And so with that change, we typically recommend intercourse the day of your positive and the day after. And that's because that positive is looking for the LH hormone, which is the hormone of ovulation. But it's a threshold, right? So we don't know if that hormone's on the way up or if it's on the way down. And so basically having intercourse the day of your positive and the day after covers you whether it's on the way up or on the way down. And that's it. So two days out of the month should be dedicated. So timed intercourse should be dedicated for baby making sex. And then the rest of the month really needs to be dedicated and really a conscious effort made for intimacy and connection, whether that's intercourse or other forms of intimacy. But I strongly encourage patients that are on this journey to really have a focus on that outside of the quote unquote baby making sex, if you will. So a few things I wanted to 
touch on that you mentioned. So how long, I know you mentioned that LH surge and you don't know, right? When it's positive, am I all the way up and coming down or am I on my way up? How long, once the egg is released, how long does it hang out there and is it able to be fertilized? Yeah. So we know that from the peak of the LH surge, ovulation is going to happen somewhere in that 12 to 24 hour window. And we know that the egg only survives for that short period after it's been released. So when you talk about sperm and egg, we know that the sperm can survive in the female pelvis for up to 72 hours, which is why we always encourage intercourse early, so day of the positive, instead of later. The egg really has a very short half-life. And if it's not fertilized, then it's not capable anymore. And again, that's that 12 to 24 hour window after you're positive, or I should say after the peak of the surge. From start to finish, the full LH surge lasts about 36 hours. So for patients who are in fertility treatments, those who are doing something called a trigger shot to provoke ovulation, the timing between the shot and your procedure is going to be closer to that 36-hour mark because we're trying to time it from the Mm. beginning to the very end of the surge. Right, right. It's also, and it's just so interesting. So I love that you mentioned too, your cycle can vary, right? So I just want to mention this just for those listening might resonate with, with some of you. So before I had any kids at all, I had this very strict, like 28 day cycle, like a very beautiful ovulation at day 14, you know, the whole nine yards. And, and even after my first pretty much, well, you know, of course you're kind of wonky when you're postpartum, but then once you stop nursing and all of that, everything kind of goes back. Mine went back into that 28 day cycle. However, after I had my was it after my second was after my third my body i don't know what happened it just went completely berserk it totally crazy and i had had a miscarriage prior to this but i had we decided we wanted to try for our last fourth kid and it was kind of like a straight up nightmare because my body was on a 21 day cycle i was like what is this like situation. And I do believe it was just an imbalance of hormones. Like uh, I just had weight estrogen on board, which is just generally where I'm at these days. But yeah, like a 28 to 21 day cycle, which made things very difficult as far as conceiving. And I had conceived twice when I had that 21 day cycle and both times miscarried at like the five and a half week mark. And I do think it was most likely due to like just this hormone imbalance and my body just couldn't produce maybe enough progesterone or what have you. I don't know. But I think it's really important. I guess the take home is that if you're in tune with your body, which most women are, you you just, you are, right? You know when something's not right. And if you're having cycles that are 20 days, 22 days, if you think something's off, just even just like writing those simple things down and saying like, okay, you know, I noticed that my, my cycles the last couple months have been 22 days and I'm feeling like you know I'm I'm ovulating on day 9 and just kind of writing those things down and bringing them to your infertility specialist could be really helpful for them in trying to figure out you know exactly what could be going on with you and it gives you that like that control I feel like that's what can be really really hard is you feel like you're out of control of the situation and when you're being in tune with your body and saying, okay, I know that this is happening and I can write all these things down and I'm in control of what's going on and what where I'm giving that information and trying to combat it that way. It makes you feel like you have more power, you know? 
I love that. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of loss of control. And and I would just add to what you're saying to say, don't wait. You know, if you have noticed or if you feel something's off, and that's always my caveat when people ask me, you know, when to see a fertility specialist or when to have testing done. And I list sort of all of these textbook answers. And at the end, at the very end, I say, you know, and, and if you have something right, like your intuition, your instinct, maybe just have a consultation, maybe the consultation is enough, or maybe you get tested. And if the testing all comes back normal, maybe that's the reassurance you needed to then try for a few more months, right? So I think it's really important. Interestingly, I recently had a patient who, same thing, her cycles, she's like, you know, just something doesn't, you know, they just, they're getting a little longer. I'm just not sure. I am getting a positive, but it's not, you know, I'm, I'm just not entirely sure. It prompted a workup and we arrived at a, a diagnosis that otherwise maybe would have come like in a year from now. So I think it's really important being in tune with your body, as you mentioned, and being that self-advocate to say, you know what, something just doesn't feel right. And I'm going to make that appointment and just, see what they have to say about it. And then I'll just add a follow-up to that point is it also really depends who the doctor is, right? So, and I equate that to any other sort of service industry. When you go, I don't know, let's just talk about hair for a second. When you go get your hair done, you have your lady, right? Like I had a a co-fellow of mine. I was in Connecticut doing doing my fellowship at the University of Connecticut. She would travel back to Pennsylvania because she had to go to her lady and who did a great job, by the way. And, you know, she would not deviate from that lady. But then if you try a new salon, it can be hit or miss, right? So it might take a little bit of trial and error to find the right person who understands your hair, who understands how you're communicating what you want with your hair. And so I would extrapolate that, you know, for context, I would extrapolate that to the to the fertility journey and seeing either your OBGYN or a fertility specialist. For example, I have a lot of patients who are young in their 20s, they may or may not have been pregnant before. And they're bringing concerns about like, hey, I'm trying, it's not working. And so many of them are dismissed like, oh, you're young, don't worry about it. Just keep trying, you know, don't worry, don't worry. And I encourage them to maybe seek out another opinion. Maybe it's worth seeing another doc just for another, you know, set of eyes on your case. Yes, absolutely. I do want to, is there anything that you feel like we might have missed throughout the conversation? I'm going to end with this one important one, but is there anything <laughs> so that do, you Yeah, feel- so I do, I do want to just touch very briefly on treatment. And the only reason is because I feel like most patients, when they think of a fertility specialist, they automatically think of IVF mm-hmm. or in vitro fertilization, or like they automatically need a carrier, like a lot of Hollywood. And I just, you know, I want to just sort of dispel that myth that when you see a fertility specialist, really the first consultation is going to be a real deep dive into the history, talking about what we think some of the risk factors may be. And then there's going to be a whole lot of testing <laughs> to try and identify, you know, if there's something going on that that can be identified and can be treated. And then really when you're talking about treatment, you know, we spent a lot of time today talking about lifestyle. There's also, you know, supplements, vitamins that might be recommended. And then the treatments are really broken down into three different buckets. So you t- you have, you know, timed intercourse with medication, you have an insemination procedure, which is kind of like a pap smear visit with medication. And then you do have IVF, which is a whole sort of umbrella in and of itself that has a ton of different components to it. And the medications can be oral, 
can be injectable or can be a combination of both. In some scenarios, you also have a fourth arm, which is reproductive surgery. So I wanted to just, you know, one liner, just understand that if you see a fertility specialist, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to end up in IVF. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Super important. All right. So I, this question I feel like is so, so important as far as the stress anxiety aspect of infertility. Just, I know so many people in my own life that they, 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 they want to have an answer for what's wrong. So they kind of go grasping at these straws. And so I'd love for you to touch on if there's anything that is specific that you think patients should avoid. So for example, you know, I've heard some of the things I've heard is, oh, I should be avoiding anything that has to do with plastics. I should be eating organic food. I should be using skincare that's, you know, quote unquote clean, which I've discussed in my podcast before as far as, you know, what clean skincare actually is. And I would just love for you to touch on that because I feel that so many women are are somewhat misguided, especially with social media these days where people are talking about, well, you know, it could be X, Y, and Z. And you start focusing on all of those things. And it can be really, really stressful to, for example, overhaul your entire beauty routine or skincare or food or things in your life that you can't control as much, but then you stress about them because people are telling you they're bad and that they're going to affect your fertility. Right. I'm so glad that you asked this question. And I think this comes back to the lifestyle optimization stuff that we were talking about earlier and the concept of small changes. Now, if I'm being totally honest, I feel that, you know, the avoiding plastics or the clean skincare or all of that, like we should all be doing that anyway. (laughs) Those are all things that really are just beneficial like to us in our general health, because again, remember, reproductive health is an extension of general health. I think where women get sort of caught or or stressed is that they were doing things one way, and now they're trying to do this, you know, 180 and just completely overhaul their entire lifestyle. And that all that's going to do is lead to more stress, in my opinion. So I think small changes that you can incorporate. So something easy would be like buying glass Pyrex instead of Tupperware and changing that out or, you know, a metal or not metal. What's it, you know, BPA free or plastic free water bottle instead of that, right? Those are easy, simple changes. Skincare routine, maybe you change out one product and see how that goes. And then if you tolerate it, then you change out another product, right? But when you try to do this complete, like, I don't know, just blank slate on your life and then rebuild, I mean, it's so overwhelming that I think it's impossible to maintain consistency and sustainability. So that's where I think these small changes are so, so important. Number one, for stress management, but number two, for for the ability to maintain those changes in the long term. So I do agree that with, with a lot of what you're saying, I do agree there's a benefit to all of those things on reproductive health. But what I don't think is you come in and you just completely wipe out everything out and, you know, rebuild ultra organic, or if you're going out to a restaurant, you won't eat anything that's not, you know, super clean, organic, vegan, etc. blah, blah, blah. Like that's just way too restrictive. And it's way too dramatic of an impact on your life, on your daily life. So these small, easy changes are going to make it 
you know, easier for you to, to incorporate that and then maintain that in the long haul. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then is there anything I'm trying to think like general, you don't tell your patients to avoid anything in particular, right? Like if, if you see a patient and they're having like, you know, this hard time with fertility and you're like, okay, I want you to focus on X, Y, and Z. I want you to avoid these things. Or is there anything that you commonly? Yeah. That's a great question. I think, I think everything it has to be individualized. I'll, I'll start there because, you know, it really depends on each individual case. So if there's a patient, so for example, as a fertility specialist, I'm never going to advocate a patient drink alcohol, right? That's never going to be a recommendation. But if the patient is having a glass of wine a week with her girlfriends at happy hour, one glass a week, like, am I really going to say, you know, you're going to go to happy hour and you're not going to drink? No, because life still has to happen. So I'm okay. Now, if she's drinking, so, you know, I had a patient who said, well, you know, we have maybe a shot or two of vodka every night with dinner. Okay. Well, that probably is not, you know, healthy. We probably want to work on reducing that some. So I think it really needs to be tailored and individualized, but I also try, you know, infertility is stressful enough. Coming for testing and treatment is already a huge impact to a patient's life. And so when you're making these huge lifestyle changes on top of that, you're adding stress, right? So how can we optimize your lifestyle, but minimize the impact to your, to your socializing, to your daily routine. If you're somebody who, I don't know, works a 12 hour shift, can we incorporate walking or can we incorporate, you know, a 10 minute workout at the beginning or at the end of that? So it's really those small changes that I keep coming back to that I think are going to be really helpful. Now, for example, if you are, I don't know, let's say a painter, and you don't wear a mask, and you are exposed, and your sperm count or your blood work is coming back abnormal, then I'm going to say, hey, you know, what can we do differently? Can you wear an N95? Can you, you know, whatnot? My night shift workers, I work with a lot of healthcare people who work night shift. And, you know, we know that that impacts fertility. We know that that impacts cycle regularity. So when they have those disorders, well, is there any way for you to switch from nights to days or what? So really it has to be tailored and individualized. I don't think there's one, you know, blanket statement of like, avoid this or don't do that. Certainly, you know, tobacco obviously is a biggie, drugs obviously is a biggie, but I think, you know, in general, in a patient's life, part of that consultation is taking stock of what does their daily life look like and how can we make tweaks and changes to optimize that even more? Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. Okay, great. Well, is there anything you want to mention about what we've already been chatting about before I jump into the questions that are unrelated. I just wanted to tack on one last thing because we've been talking a lot about maybe, you know, negative behaviors or negative lifestyle choices. But I would also argue that the other extreme may also be unhealthy, right? If somebody's working out two hours every day, or if they're sleeping four hours a night, or, you know, if they drink a lot of caffeine to keep themselves up and then they're stimulated and whatnot, or if they're maybe calorie restricting and so they're not getting enough protein or enough good fats or whatnot. So I just, you know, extremes on both ends can also be, I just wanted to make that last comment. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right. So 
two questions for you that I ask everyone I have on. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice for moms, what would it be? Self-care and (laughs) self-love. And that is not just as a fertility specialist. I think that's also as a mom myself. One thing and I still struggle with to this day is really prioritizing myself. There's a lot of guilt that comes with that. Like, you know, every waking moment that my children are home, I feel like I have to be with them and engaging them and taking care of them. And, you know, I think allowing yourself the time to love yourself is going to be really important. So self-care and self-love would probably be my biggest message. And if you're trying to get pregnant on top of being a mom, there's going to be so much more added stress as well. So just really, you know, scheduling it, making it a priority and scheduling it. You know, I have a mentor that says, if you don't schedule it, it doesn't happen. So Mm -hmm. get it on the books and make sure you're doing something for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, my husband and I still, I mean, we will say, okay, like, let's review the week. And, you know, it's funny because we both kind of realize when we both need that extra time, either with friends or by ourselves. And he'll be like, you know what? I feel like you haven't done anything in a while. Like, what about Tuesday? What about Wednesday? Can your girlfriends go out? Can you go to the beach and and just hang out or whatever? Why don't you put it into the calendar? We have extra time this week. Like, let's make it happen. And I think just maybe having that conversation with your partner about, you know, if you can kind of get your partner on that same page where they're able to see from you that you might need that time, right? They can kind of see things building up sometimes even before you can, right? Uh-huh, and so just uh-huh. talking with your partner and having them on the same page and just saying like, if you see me like starting to get off kilter, can you just mention to me that I need to take some time and and we can kind of go through the calendar and see when we can make it happen. And just them knowing and telling them that you want them to watch out for that is really huge. And I feel like it really does help because I feel like my yeah. husband actually is even more in tune with it than I am sometimes. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The next question is, if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Pasta. <laughs> Yeah. So what kind of, what, what, what pasta are you having? How are you making it? So, so the kids are on a bow tie kick right now and literally like holding up the bow tie to their necks. It's actually pretty cute. So oh. um, bow tie, <laughs> yeah, cute. bow tie pasta with vodka sauce, super easy, like Yum. 10, 15 minute meal and yes. everybody's happy. Everybody eats it. And yeah, that's definitely where we're at these days. Vodka sauce is definitely by far the best pasta sauce in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. Amen. I agree. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sweldo, for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us about this important topic today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.